Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. A hunger for holiness is the recognition that there is some unfinished business in my life. And I'm going to open the doors of my heart and give an all excess pass to God to come and bring holiness into the unholy parts of me. That's the first step and the first mark of genuine repentance. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm so glad you've joined us today as we continue in our Awakening series. So far, we've learned about four kings of Israel and four biblical conditions for revival found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Today, Pastor Trent turns to more recent history as we study repentance as a pivotal point in revival. So let's open our Bibles together as we discover five marks of genuine repentance. Here's Pastor Trent. And so he says in verse 8, Do not be now stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord and come to His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may, what? Turn away from you. You see the word anger there? It's almost as if in our modern-day Western Christianity world, we see that word in the Old Testament. We see that word in the New Testament. There's just kind of a filter that kind of filters that word out because many of us cannot even conceive of a God who gets angry. The anger of God is a real thing. Do you understand that God gets angry when you sin? A repenter heeds the call to repent. In the 1730s and the 1740s, God raised up a man named Jonathan Edwards who pastored a little congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts. In 1741, God used this man to spark the first great awakening in America. You, I read about that in my public school American history books. It left such an indelible impression upon the country that Within 25 years, our nation would be established, and that's why we see all the Scripture in all the documents and the Scripture on all of our buildings that were built back in that area is because of the first great awakening in America. Do you know one of the messages that Jonathan Edwards preached that contributed to that kind of awakening? It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Like, what kind of sermon would that be? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what he said. He said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. That word is not adores. It's abhors you. Like a spider hanging over a fire pit. That's how God sees you. And is dreadfully provoked. Provoked by what? Your sin. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He goes on and said, He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. 
He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable, not adorable, abominable in his sight than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. But, but I thought God loves me. He does love you. That's why your sin makes him so angry. You have kids? You love them? When they sin, do you get angry? Yeah, because you know they're capable of so much more. The anger of God is a very real thing. And when you turn your back on God and turn your face towards sin, you anger the heart of God. And that's what they had done. That's what their fathers had done. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 9. And if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. Do you understand that the gracious gift of God is repentance? The fact that an angry God would actually give you the opportunity to repent requires grace and mercy. It is a gracious and merciful God that will turn His anger away from you if you repent. The anger does not disappear. The anger of God doesn't just poof and He doesn't act like, okay, I'll pretend like you didn't sin. The anger of God has to be diverted from you somewhere else. Do you know what God does when He turns His anger away from you? Do you know where He turns it? The cross. If you want to see a picture of the anger of God, get a picture of Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus absorbed the anger of God for all who would repent and believe. The anger of God diverted from me to Jesus is the gospel that gives me every opportunity to repent in this lifetime. But please hear me. If you will not repent, you will experience all of the anger and the wrath and the hatred of God on you forever in hell. And yet this gracious, merciful God is calling you to turn your face toward Him and turn your back on sin. Will you do it? What are you waiting for? You're waiting for a better offer? Repentance is a command. Repent. But here's what we need to understand. Repentance is also a gift from a gracious God. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. 
leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses. For everybody that's a Christian, there was a point where you finally came to your senses and you realized the direction you were heading was not helpful. It was harmful. And you turned your back on sin and you turned your face toward God that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Repent. Turn your face toward God. And that's not just a one-time process. We'll talk more about that later. Here's the third thing. A repenter has reason to rejoice. Quickly, look over at verse 21. Verse 21. And the people of Israel who were present in Jerusalem kept the feast of the unleavened bread for seven days with great gladness. Underline the word gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord, man, it was great to see these men up here. They sounded awful. But what they lacked in beauty, they made up for in volume and made a joyful noise to the Lord with all their might. That is the kind of praise that comes from a repentant heart. If you've never been able to open your mouth and experience the joy of the Lord, you come into this place and you're just burdened and heavy and it's like, I don't know what these people are so happy about. It's because you've never repented. Because a repenter has reason to rejoice. Look over at verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Then the priest and the Levites rose and blessed the people, in, and their voice was heard. Where was their voice heard? Their voice was heard, and their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven. Their voices were heard in heaven. Sound familiar? If my people that are called by my name will turn from their sin, then I will hear from heaven. I will hear their prayer and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a demonstration of what he promised in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Their prayer, their rejoicing was heard in heaven, because the result of repentance is a new freedom and a new praise in our relationship with God. In 1904 and 1905, there was a 26-year-old young man in the nation of Wales. Wales is a country just off the coast of Ireland, population of about a million people. And this young man began to pray over and over that God would bend him. His cry eventually became, bend me, Lord, bend the church and save the nation. God began to put on his heart a burden to see revival and awakening in his own country. And he had an opportunity to preach his first sermon at his little church. And he had four points to his message. Those four points he just continued to preach everywhere he got a chance to preach. They've become known historically as the four points that changed a nation. Here's what he preached. Confess all known sin. Remove every doubtful thing. Instantly obey every prompting of the Holy Spirit and profess Christ publicly. Find your mouth and open it. 
and let people know the source and the sender of revival. So Evan Roberts, at the age of 26, began to be used by God, and people started to respond to that message. As a matter of fact, in six months' time, over 100,000 people repented of sin, placed their faith in Christ. Now, think about that. In a nation of a million people, 10% of the population came to Christ. If God was to do in America today what God did in Wales in 1904 and 1905, over 30 million people would come to faith in Christ. All for 30 million people coming to faith in Christ? Say amen. Amen. Some of it needs to start here. Some of you need to come to Christ by repenting of sin. There was such change that took place in the culture. It was said that two Christians could not meet on the street without spontaneously breaking into one of those great Welsh hymns. Can you imagine going to Walmart tomorrow, bumping into somebody, and just starting to sing, How Great Is Our God? And within a few minutes, you've got 500 people gathered around you in the aisle 12 at Walmart as you praise God. That's what was happening in Wales. There was so much change in the culture. There was record bankruptcy. How does revival impact bankruptcy? There were so many bars and taverns and brothels that had no business. They went bankrupt. Can you imagine strip clubs in Chicago and even in our area going bankrupt because they had no business? There was no demand for those types of services. It was said that they had to have town meetings to decide what to do with the police. They gave the police white gloves symbolizing there's no crime. You have nothing to do. And so they decided to form gospel quartets and just go into different places in the community to sing hymns. Can you imagine in South Bend if we just kind of disbanded the police department and had a big spontaneous police choir just singing the praises of Jesus in little sections of the community because they had nothing else to do. There was no crime. There was one courtroom trial that was reported. There was a, a man who had committed a serious crime, and they brought him in. They had him in the witness box, and as the lawyers were asking him questions, he, he finally, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, just broke down in tears and began to weep and began to confess, I did it, I, I, I've sinned, and I'm so sorry, and, and it was a broken man. The judge stopped the trial. He said, listen, look at me. I want to talk to you as a man, not as a judge. And in the next few minutes, he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. The man repented of his sin, placed his faith in Christ. The jury was so overwhelmed with what happened, they stood and they broke out into praise. They turned the whole thing into a church service right in the middle of district court in Wales. There were work stoppages in the coal mines. Why was there work stoppages in the coal mines? They had to retrain the mules. Those mules were so used to being cussed at and beaten by those coal miners that all of a sudden they're down there singing, praising God. They had a brand new vocabulary, and the mules had no idea what they were saying. That's the kind of rejoicing that happens when sinners repent and experience an awakening. 
Very quickly, I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians. We've got one more point. We're going to move very quickly now. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us the evidences, the genuine marks of repentance. And we want to look at them very quickly here. So here's the first thing that we see. A, a repenter lives life with no regret. A repenter lives life with no regret. So here's five marks of genuine repentance. If we repent today, these are the types of things that we'll see. First of all, a new hunger for holiness. Look at verse 1, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, stop right there. What promises is he talking about? Well, just let your eyes go up the page one verse into chapter 6, verse 18. What's the promise? What promises is he talking about? Uh, this promise, I will be a father to you. You didn't have so, so great a father. You had a faithless father. God says, I'll be your father. I'll be your dad. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You want a father upgrade? How about God? He's a father to the fatherless. So he says, based on that promise, then do this in verse 1. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. A hunger for holiness is the recognition that there is some unfinished business in my life. And I'm going to open the doors of my heart and give an all-excess pass to God to come and bring holiness into the unholy parts of me. That's the first step and the first mark of genuine repentance. Here's the second thing, a godly grief over sin. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, by the way, this is probably the third or the fourth letter that Paul wrote. We have two of them preserved for us in Scripture. And these letters are the longest letters that Paul had to write to a church. You know why he had to write long letters? Because he had to deal with so much sin in the church. And so he says, um, yeah, I made you grieve with my letter. It was a hard letter. You know what he was telling them in the letter? Repent. And I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So a little insight into a preacher's job. Do you think I like getting up here every week and pointing out your sin? Think it makes me happy to watch you crumble under the weight of that? No, but I don't regret it because you need to repent. Look at verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. What does godly grief feel like? It feels like a heaviness. It feels like a thousand bricks have been dumped on your heart. It sometimes feels like you can't breathe. It sometimes feels like I'm far from God. Sometimes it feels like I've got to change. That's a godly grief. But notice there's another kind of grief in verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. See the word salvation there? That's not just talking about the point of your justification when you begin a relationship with Christ. Even though, please hear me, there is no salvation where there is no repentance. The idea that you can come to Christ and love Him and, and somehow not change, that is foreign to the gospel represented in Scripture. 
where there is no salvation, where there is no repentance, there is no salvation. But the word salvation has a broader meaning. It's not just talking about the point of justification, it's talking about the process of sanctification as well. Because repentance is the regular exercise of a healthy Christian. It's what you do every day of your life when God shows you areas where you must change. And so repentance leads to salvation without regret. There's our word. Whereas, here's the contrast, worldly grief leads to or produces death. What's the difference between godly grief that leads to salvation and worldly grief that produces death? Worldly grief just means you feel bad. You're sorry. You might even say, I'm sorry. I feel sorry. I feel bad. I wish I could do better. I'm lame. Boy, preacher, you really stepped on my toes today. I just feel like a worm when I come to church. You are a worm. (laughs) Be a worm that repents. And if I'm stepping on your toes, tell your toes to repent and produce in you a sorrow, a grief that leads to life and freedom and joy. Not a heavy burden where you just feel bad all the time and you become depressed. And I don't even think I want to live anymore. And I just compare myself to everybody else. I just can't get it right. You're just experiencing worldly grief. That's not what God has for you. Turn your face toward God and turn your back on sin and you will experience a godly grief that leads to life. Here's the third thing. Hatred of my sin. Verse 11. For what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. The word earnestness is a word related to hurrying, making haste, no delay, no procrastination. Nine o'clock yesterday morning, I got a text. This is what it said. It said, um, good morning. I'm inside the church, and the smoke alarm has gone off. I smell smoke, so I did not call off the firemen. They are here now. I will keep you posted. Like, what do you do with that? I mean, I'm ready to grab a squirt bottle and a water gun and race to the church. There's a sense of urgency. There can be no delay here. You're smelling smoke in the church. I mean, what is going on? And, and, you know, fortunately, it turned out that there's an air conditioner that went bad in the blower, and we need to replace that. And just, but the church was on fire for a few minutes yesterday, and uh, we we took care of it and everything. But there's there's a sense of urgency when you realize you are on fire. If you are in sin, please understand, you are, in, you are on fire. Please have some earnestness, some urgency about you to repent. Don't wait till Thursday to call the fire department. Repent now. There's a hatred of that which is causing such damage in your life and your damage in your relationship to God, damage to others. And so there is an earnestness, a hatred of sin, and a restitution toward others. Look at verse 11. Halfway through it says, but also an eagerness to clear yourself. He goes on in the last part of that verse, at every point to prove yourself innocent in the matter. When repentance is genuine, 
your feet are moving toward the people that your sin has damaged. To do everything you can to make restitution, to clear your name, to make it right. Sometimes that's impossible. But a repentant heart says, I not only need to deal with the sin, the the pain that my sin has caused me, I need to deal with the pain that my sin has caused others. That's an evidence of genuine repentance. And then finally, a new fear of God. Look at it in verse 11 again. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. You hate sin so much. You know that it grieves God's heart so much. You're going to do everything you can to extinguish the sin. Turn your face toward God. Turn your back on sin. Fear of God is not something that causes you to cower from His presence. The fear of God is something that motivates you to get closer in His presence. Because fear, the fear of God, is something that seeks a right relationship with the source of the fear, right? So we need to repent. I need to repent. And you need to repent. Now, my great fear is that we would talk about repentance and nobody would repent. So I want to give you a little assignment. If you came in uh, and received a bulletin, would you please take out that little page inside that bulletin? You see that little page in there? And the question at the top of the page is this. What do you need to turn from? Here's the thing. I just spent 45 minutes preaching a message on repentance, but I really didn't mention any specific sin. So here's your homework project. Here's 65 sins. You say, 65 sins? I didn't know there were so many sins. This is about a fourth of the sins mentioned in the Bible, so I'm cutting you some slack. Okay? Here's what you do with this list. You get alone in the presence of God. And you look and you say, lack of love. Get your Bible open. You read that verse and you call out to God. And you say, oh God, I've had a lack of love in my heart. A lack of love for you. A lack of love for my family. A lack of love for the lost. Oh God, I, I love myself. And today, God, I want to confess that to you. I repent. I'm turning my back on a lack of love. I'm turning my face toward you. God, fill my heart with love. Go to the next one. Judging. Oh, God, I'm so quick to judge others. I'm so quick to see the sin in everybody else and so slow to see the sin in me. And God, I've judged other people that are weaker than me or disadvantaged than me or maybe another color than me or somebody that acts different than me. Oh God, I am not the judge. You are the judge. And I repent. Go to the next sin. And keep this in your Bible because this is not a one-time exercise. The repenters need to repent. Have you been challenged to consider your need for repentance? If so, let me encourage you to get a copy of the resource Pastor Trent referred to in today's message. It's called, What Do You Need to Turn From? To request it, just send an email to resonate at harvestgranger.org. We'd love to hear from you. Again, for the free resource, 
what do you need to turn from, send an email to resonate at harvestgranger.org. Trent Griffith is the senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. You're welcome to join us at one of our weekend worship services. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. So you can choose any of those service times and just show up and worship Jesus with us. Again, the name of the church is Harvest Bible Chapel. We're located on Hickory Road, about halfway between Cleveland Road and Brick Road in Granger, Indiana. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus, and I hope God's word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger, harvestgranger.org.